Would you pray with me? Well, it is indeed a joy to be with you this morning and uh, to be in Georgia. Would you open your Bibles this morning? We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And so in Thunder Bay, we're working through this great letter from Paul. And we're going to be looking at Paul's short prayer um, at the end of chapter 3. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Hear the word of our God. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are near to us, that you are near us this morning. In fact, you walk among your churches. And so we ask this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would take up your word and that you would apply it to our hearts. We need your ministry. So come and work among us, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by, by using our imaginations. So, so imagine with me, it's the Lord's Day, it's Sunday, and you have gathered together with all of God's people in the city of Thessalonica, and you have gathered to worship the Lord because it's the Lord's Day. And so what are you doing? Well, you're, you're, you're reading the Word, the Scriptures, you're singing, you're praying, you're, you're listening But as you gather with your brothers and sisters in Jesus, you get a sense right from the beginning of the service that there is something different about this service. There is a buzz in the air and you learn that the Apostle Paul, who is is now distant from you, has sent a letter to you and everyone is stirred up. And so the letter is uh, is read in its entirety And so here you are. This is the moment. So what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you saying to to your neighbor who's sitting next to you after listening to this letter from Paul? Well, to begin with, you're you're, you're thinking about Paul. It's evident as you listen to Paul's letter that, that Paul hasn't forgotten about you. He prays for you literally every day. He remembers you and all that you have done. Chapter 1, verse 2, remembering before our God and Father your, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's also evident that Paul is concerned about you. Even from afar, he is looking after you. He is using his resources and his ministry team to care for you. That's evident. And as you take all of this in, you realize, Paul really loves me. He really loves me. There's no doubt about it. His heart is turned towards me and my brothers and sisters. Chapter 2, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Why? Because you had become very 
dear to us. And so your heart's warmed. You're warmed as you listen to this letter, but your thoughts go further. It's not just that Paul hasn't forgotten you. It's not just that Paul is concerned about you. It's just not that Paul loves you. You see something deeper in the midst of this letter. You see that God himself hasn't forgotten about you and that God himself is concerned about you and that God himself indeed loves you. And all that Paul has said, all that Paul has written establishes and confirms that in your mind. But still, as you think about it, in articulating all of that, you still aren't satisfied. All of those words are true, but they don't fully match what you felt while listening to Paul's letter. You sense it, and you sense it very keenly that something happened to you while you were listening to that letter. It was like you were ushered into the very presence of God. Your, your feet were still anchored on the earth, but somehow, some way, it was as if you came into the very presence, into the courtroom of God, dealing with God himself. When Paul gave thanks, when Paul prayed, when Paul spoke about all that God had done and that all God will do through Jesus in the future, Paul melted away. In fact, as you listened... All the people around you melted away, and you found yourself dealing with God in his presence. Now, this little exercise of imagination, thinking about how it would have felt like to receive Paul's letter in Thessalonica is helpful because it helps us understand both Paul and the three verses we're looking at in the midst of 1 Thessalonians. Paul carried out his ministry in the presence of God, and Paul's goal in ministry was to bring those to whom he ministered into the presence of God with him. And that's what's going on in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Paul grabs us by the arm, and through this short little prayer, he ushers us into the presence of God. And so look with me at this prayer. First thing you notice is that Paul's prayer is really short. Paul doesn't drone on and on. He doesn't meander there and over here like he is lost and he is looking for something that he just can't seem to find. Rather, Paul's prayer is pointed. He sets before God the Father and the Lord Jesus two petitions. Two petitions. In verse 11, he asks that all the obstacles keeping him from the Thessalonians would be removed. Then in verse 12, Paul asks that the Lord Jesus would would so work in their hearts that love would abound and grow up. And then finally in verse 13, he gives the rationale, the reasoning for why he is praying these things. So Paul's prayer is short. It's three verses. It takes, I don't know, 40 seconds to read. We've got two petitions and an explanation It's short. It's simple. But as we look at these three verses and these two pointed petitions, we see that there is great depth to them. And in fact, in them, we learn what the very essence of Christian ministry and service is all about. We really learn what the whole Christian life is all about. Now, too often we see prayer as something perfunctory, We're tempted to treat it like the the warm-up before the workout. You loosen, you limber up your body, and then after loosening and limbering up your body, you get on to the the real work, whatever that real work might be, studying or or preaching or, or serving a brother and sister. 
And too often we see something, we see prayer as something extra in our lives. We're, we're tempted to treat it like the, the garnish on the plate. It, it's good that it's there on the plate. We like sprinkling it throughout our day, but as we think about it, it is the garnish. It is not the meat and potatoes of our, our lives. But as we look at these verses, we learn something. When we treat prayer as something perfunctory or extra or a warm-up or a garnish, we reveal that we have lost sight what Christianity is all about. Christian ministry, Christian service is not ultimately about getting a bunch of things done, getting a bunch of work accomplished. It's really about communion with the Lord, dwelling with Him. And so we are to serve in communion with God, and when we serve in communion with God, we are laboring so that others, too, might have communion with God. And so I want to work through this short prayer with you. And so my plan is this. I'm going to start at the end of the prayer. So verse 13, we're going to start in verse 13, looking at Paul's rationale, and then we're going to work up to verse 12, verse 11. So if you're a logical thinker this morning, we're going to start with Paul's rationale for why he's praying. And then in light of that rationale, we'll consider his two petitions to the Lord. Now, I have two aims for our time in the Word. My my first aim is this, that we would just receive Paul's ministry. We want to receive Paul's ministry. That is, through the Word of God this morning, as it's preached and applied and explained, we might be drawn up into the presence of God. What is Paul doing? He's going to God. And if we're taking in these verses rightly with faith, we too should go to God in these words. And that's, that's the first aim, that we might go to God and we might commune with him. Second, that as we commune with God, we would find ourselves reformed by Paul's ministry. That is to say that we might find ourselves in Paul's shoes, laboring in communion with God so that others too might share in God's presence. So, let's get to work. Let's look at verse 13, starting there. It is easy and quite common to lack a vision for prayer. It often goes something like this. There are several needs that you are made aware of. Some of those needs are temporal. You you learn that someone's lost their job and someone is sick. There are needs that are are spiritual. Someone is really discouraged. Another fellow is, is struggling with this specific sin. And you know of this person who needs salvation. And so what you do is you you hear all of these needs, they registered, and then you put them in a list, and then you work through that list by presenting the list to the Lord. You pray first for the job, and then you pray for the sickness, then for the guy who's discouraged, and for the gal who's dealing with this sin, and then for that person who needs to be saved. And after working through your list, you say amen, and then you're off to go to the next thing. And as we think about it, certainly there's nothing wrong with having a list of petitions because we find here in Scripture that Paul has a list of petitions. We see it in verse 11 and verse 12. And certainly there's nothing wrong with presenting your list of petitions to the Lord. Paul himself does it. He has a list and he brings his list to the Lord. Here's what I'm praying. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't stop with the list. He goes further. He sets his petitions before the Lord for a reason. He prays because he is driven along by something. He prays because he has seen something. And we ask, well, what does Paul see? 
What's his vision for prayer? What's driving him along as he prays? Well, listen to Paul, verse 13. Paul says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What is Paul looking at when he prays? He is looking at the day of the Lord. He tells us in plain language that Jesus is going to come. The divine warrior is going to split open the skies and he along with his vast heavenly army of angels will bring heaven to earth in a sudden and swift manner. And the result of Jesus' coming will be glorious because God's kingdom will come in fullness. God's glory covering the waters, as, the, as cover, covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the Father himself will be so present, so present that all of humanity will stand before him. So that's how Paul is praying. He is praying, looking forward to the coming of Jesus, picturing Jesus coming. And that's quite a vision to have in prayer. It's a, it's a vision that should give us goosebumps and, and make us sit up straight in our chairs if we have our heads on straight. But here's the question. Well, what does any of this have to do with the church in Thessalonica? You've got these Christians there. Paul is looking up at the Lord's return. What's the connection? Well, for Paul, the second coming of Jesus has everything to do with this church. Paul knows that on a certain day, those believers will stand before God. And Paul prays towards this end that these Christians would be ready and prepared to stand before God in that day. And so that raises another question we ask as good readers of the text. Well, what does it mean to be ready and prepared to meet God? What does it look like? Well, Paul lands on this qualification. Their hearts must be established blameless in holiness. To make this more clear and more personal for us, only those who are blameless in holiness will be able to stand before the Father and enjoy communion with Him forever and ever. And that sets an enormous amount of weight upon these words. Blameless in holiness. So let's just chew on those words for a bit. Paul desires that the Thessalonians would be what? Be established. Now, this is a word that Paul has already used in 1 Thessalonians. When Paul heard of the church's trials and suffering and persecution, in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul sent Timothy along to the church that he might establish and exhort them in their faith. So there's this great storm of suffering upon the church. Timothy is sent to establish, to stabilize them in faith. And so Paul here is looking forward to the day of the Lord, and he is praying that these, these people would be made firm. They'd be made firm, that they'd be established, that they would be grounded in something. And they must be grounded in holiness, blameless in holiness. And this phrase has to do with morality. It's, it's what you do with your life. It's what you don't do with your life. Blameless in holiness. It's something of not being guilty of sin. And Paul tells us that only those who are blameless in holiness will be able to stand before God. Only those who have been separated from the life of sin and as a result have been devoted to God will be able to commune with God. Now this is something that's heavy, isn't it? Blameless in holiness. And when we hear that, we're tempted to throw up our hands in despair. If God requires this, you must be established blameless in holiness 
to enjoy communion with Him, how could we, how could we ever do that? But we have to press upon Paul's words here and, and try to understand them. When Paul says blameless in holiness, I don't think that Paul has this idea of perfection or flawlessness. And we can know this because Paul has used all of these words in this letter already. So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is writing about his own ministry and he says this about himself. He says, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So here is Paul, he is living, and he says, I am ready to meet the Lord Jesus. My conduct is blameless. It is righteous and holy. And think about that. Paul is like us. He shares our same nature. He was an imperfect and flawed man, but he lived blamelessly. And so how do you live blamelessly? Well, it means when you sin, what do you do? You deal with your sin. And how do you deal with your sin? You, you, you start to deal with it by bringing it to the Lord. You confess it to him. You, you tell the Lord, this is what I have done. And then you seek forgiveness through Jesus alone. And then after you seek forgiveness, you, you turn from your sin. You repent and then you devote yourself to the will and law of God, following God's word. In fact, we, we find this described in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. This is what a blameless life looks like. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What I think Paul means is that there's a real and true conformity in our actual lives. In the gospel, God has made us holy. He has separated us from the life of sin. And as a result, there will be a real, practical, tangible holiness in our lives. And Paul is looking for that to be established in the lives of these believers. Now, verse 13 is an enormous help. We often flounder in prayer as we're thinking about our prayer lives. We often get stuck and stagnant. Why? Because we lack a vision for why we're praying in the first place. Why are we praying for that guy who lost his job? Why are we praying for that person who is sick? Why are we praying for the discouraged and that person who is dealing with sin? Why are we praying for that person who does not have have salvation? And Paul gives us answers. We pray because Jesus is coming back with an army of heavenly angels. We pray because we desire above all things that people, these people we love, will be able to share in the presence of God forever. We pray because we want these people established blameless in holiness. We pray because we prize God and we want others to prize him as well. And so we pray with our eyes set upon the coming of Jesus, and it changes everything. It changes everything. And so there's verse 13. Now we can move up. And so, in light of verse 13, how ought we to pray? Jesus is coming. God's people need to be established, blameless in holiness. What do we start asking God for? Well, Paul answers. He says, May the Lord make you increase 
and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So we have to connect verse 13 and verse 12 because the connection is so tight. This petition is the means of preparation for the last day. How are people made ready to stand before God? How are they, how are they established blameless in holiness? They are made ready, Paul says, by love and not just any sort of love, but a love that, that grows and not just grows, but overflows all boundaries. Growing up, growing up, expanding, expanding for God's people and not just for God's people, but for all people. Now, from verse 12, I want to draw out a warning and an encouragement. So first, the warning. Just think with me logically for a minute. If love prepares you to meet God, what then will sabotage this preparation? What will keep you from being established blameless in holiness? Well, the answer is anything that stands opposed to love. The Bible gives us all sorts of words to fill this out. For example, the Bible gives us the word bitterness, that sour spirit that holds on to slights and wrongs, letting them ruminate in the soul. Bitterness will keep you from having eternal communion with God. Or or anger, that violent emotion that erupts from the soul and, and comes out of you and that just levels everyone in front of you. Anger will keep you from having eternal communion with God. Or an unforgiving spirit, that refusal to release someone from their sin. An unforgiving spirit will keep you from having God. And Paul confirms this. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked, which when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them all away. Why? God's wrath is coming on account of these and those who live in them. Now, the great danger of sin is that it's deceptive. It's so deceptive. Just think about some of those sins I named. Think about the sin of bitterness. Bitterness comes to you and it's it's preaching a sermon to you. What does bitterness say? It says, you have a really good reason to feel this way. No one can understand all the wrong that's been done against you. So stay where you are. Just keep brooding, keep ruminating, keep thinking over all of these different things that have been done to you and don't move on because you have the right to feel this way. Or think about the sin of anger. Anger preaches a sermon, and it's not a very complicated sermon. It simply preaches this. You're right. You're right. They're wrong. They're wrong. And that's all it preaches. And it calls you to act on that. You're right, and they're wrong. Or think about the unforgiving spirit. It says, they've done such wrong against you. You cannot release them from their debt. You you just can't do it. You have to hold onto it. You can never let go of it. They need to be punished for what they have done. But Paul is so helpful because what does he do? He gives us ammunition against our sin. He shows us exactly what these sins will do to us if we let them set down roots in our soul and have a permanent life in us. What are they going to do? They're going to keep us from the presence of God. 
And so we need to be violent and ruthless with our sins and with the temptations that come along with them. We need to preach to our souls the, the sound logic that Paul gives to us. If I pursue this path, if I pursue anger, and I'm going to own anger and not let go of anger, I won't get God. I cannot have anger and God. I must let go of one. I can only pursue one. And so Paul gives us a warning, but he also gives us and encouragement, and the encouragement is way better than the warning. So Paul is a man who was well aware of the human heart, and he was well aware of the human heart because he had a human heart. Paul knew about all of these things that go on inside of us. He experienced bitterness and anger. He was tempted with an unforgiving spirit. But notice this. Paul's hope here in this prayer isn't the human heart. His hope is not you. His hope is the Lord Jesus. And so he prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. His hope isn't you, Christian. His hope is Jesus and that Jesus will do something. And this should encourage us and buoy us up. What is our confidence? Our confidence is this. We will stand holy and blameless before God someday. Why? Because Jesus is at work in our hearts and minds. He is grabbing hold of me, and he is shaping me, and he is changing me. He owns me. Now, there's so much encouragement here in Paul's prayer. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Just think about it a little bit. Who is this Jesus who is working in us? Well, we can answer this Jesus is, first of all, powerful. We are so easily and overcome by our sin. But Paul calls on Jesus. Just think about this Jesus. He cast out demons with just his word. He was upon the sea and it was roaring. And he said, be still. And it was still. He forgave sins by just saying, you're forgiven. This Jesus conquered death, and now he's seated at God's right hand, and he rules over all things. And the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus is at work in us. And what is Jesus doing? He's using his power to subdue our stubborn hearts so that we might love. Or think about this. Think about the mercy and kindness of Jesus. We weary ourselves with ourselves. In sin, we're struggling and fighting, and I know personally my greatest struggle in my own sanctification is with myself. I grow discouraged with Brad. But what does Paul do? He calls upon the Lord Jesus. He calls upon Jesus who does not grow weary of sinners, the one who is called a sympathetic high priest, the one who is stationed at the right hand of God who intercedes for us to produce love in us. Christian, hear this. Jesus does not grow weary with you. He does not grow impatient with you. He does not grow irritated with you. He is full of mercy and kindness, top to bottom for you. Or consider this, the wisdom of Jesus. Our hearts befuddle us. As you're trying to figure out what's going on in your heart, it's like entering into a labyrinth. You go in there, and sometimes you never come out. You're wandering around in there. But hear this good news. Jesus is wise. He made you, and he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about your heart. In this moment, he knows everything you're thinking and feeling. And it is this Jesus who is taking control of your life 
producing love in you. He can do it. He knows you. He knows how you work. And one last thing I want to point out is the resources of Jesus. We quickly run out of gas. Our capacity for love is so small. Our gas tanks are are so small, just a couple gallons. But what does Paul do? He calls upon Jesus, and Jesus has at his disposal all the treasures of heaven. And what is Jesus doing? He He is taking all the treasures of heaven, and he is bringing them to bear upon his people, us. He has won them with his blood, and now he is bringing them to bear to us through his spirit, the resources of Jesus. Now as we look at verse 12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Isn't this such a great help for our lives in Christ? Christian, you get to call upon Jesus, and you can call upon Jesus every single day. You can call upon this Jesus who is powerful and merciful and kind and wise, and you can trust that this Jesus will answer. He will come to your aid. He will give you help. He will work for you, taking control of your heart. So there's verse 12. And now we can go all the way to the beginning of Paul's prayer, verse 11. And so Paul prays, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now out of all that Paul has said in this prayer, this is the easiest part of Paul's prayer to understand. Very simply, Paul wants to go to Thessalonica and he wants to go to Thessalonica because he wants to be with the Thessalonians. He wants to, as he said in chapter 3 verse 10, supply what is lacking in their faith. And so verse 11, what does Paul do? He, he casts all of his ministry, his travel plans before the Lord before the Father and the Son, and he asks that all of these obstacles separating him from the Thessalonians, and there are many obstacles. There's Satan. Satan somehow was was thwarting Paul's travel plans. There are Jews in angry crowds and wicked rulers, and he's praying that all of these things would be overcome and that through them, somehow, God would make a path so that he could go to the Thessalonians. And we ask, as we look at verse 11, why does Paul pray this? We understand practically why he would pray that. He he wants to go to Thessalonica, and so he prays for it. Well, he prays, first of all, because he knows that these enemies will only be overcome by God. Paul knows that he doesn't have the resources to overcome these enemies. Paul knows he doesn't have the wits to outmaneuver these enemies, so he prays, God, work for me. Work for me. I need to go there. Make a way. But underneath this, I think there's a greater desire Paul prays this because he wants to be personally engaged in their fight of faith. Paul is not content to be separated from these people. He's not content writing letters and sending messengers, sending Timothy back and forth. He wants to see these dear Christians face to face. He wants to work as Christ's messenger, encouraging and strengthening and helping these people. He wants to do all that he can to spend himself so that these people might be ready and prepared to stand before God on the last day. Now, verse 11 is a great help for us. I find it immensely encouraging. Hear this. We can entrust our entire ministry to God. 
every single part of your ministry you can entrust to the Lord. You can entrust the, the spiritual components of your ministry to the Lord. But not only that, you can entrust your travel plans to the Lord. You can entrust what your enemies are doing against you with the Lord. And we can trust that the Lord will come to our aid. And we ought to imitate Paul in this. As we're doing ministry, taking all of our ministry, as we think about our ministry lives, we've got all of these different things, work and and church and small group and all of these things, we can lay them all before the Lord and we can pray, make a way for me, Lord Jesus. Make a way for me, Father, that I might be able to minister to these people for their good. And even more, we ought to express our desires to the Lord. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He desires good for the Thessalonians. He has, he has ambitions for them. And what is he doing? He is taking his ambitions, he's taking his heart, his desires, and he's just laying them all before the Lord. I want this. I want this for your people, and I'm handing it over to you, Lord. Would you own it? Would you bless it? Would you answer? And so with that, we have the entirety of Paul's prayer. As we started in verse 13, and we're exposed to Paul's theology, we're exposed to why Paul is praying. Paul is looking to the day of the Lord. And if we want to pray with purpose, we need to set our eyes on what really matters. And what really matters is that Jesus is coming back. And that all people will stand before the Father. And that people need to be made ready, established, blameless, in holiness. And if we really care about that, we are going to be praying, asking Jesus to be working in God's people so that they might grow in love, that sin might be subdued in their hearts, and that they might love God's people in ways that they have never loved before. And we don't stop there, but we do this. We take all of our life and we lay it before the Lord, saying, Lord, here it is. Here are my dreams, my ambitions. Here's my travel plans. Here's my small group. Here's my children. Lord, would you be pleased to work in the midst of this? And so where does this leave us? By God's grace, this should leave us with hearts set afire for God and to meet with him and to treasure him and to go into his presence and not just go into into his presence ourselves, but it should fuel a vision of ministry that we want to grab other people and bring them into the presence of God with us. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for these three short verses, these two petitions, an explanation. They are powerful words, and Father, we want to be changed by them.